Reckoning with the patriarchy. I sometimes wonder, is it harder to go through violence or to witness violence? Is it harder to see those that you love go through a terrible experience or to actually go through it yourself? I think sometimes they're equally painful. But I think I've also had this incredible privilege and honor to travel this world and to sit with women across this planet who have told me their stories, shared their deepest secrets with me, opened their hearts to me, so I could be part of the listening, part of the receiving of those stories. That's V, formerly known as Eve Ensler. We talk with her about her collection of essays and poems, Reckoning. Then, in honor of Black History Month, we listen back to my 2019 interview with Damaris Hill about her narrative in verse, A Bound Woman is a Dangerous Thing. That's all coming up on today's Writer's Voice, in-depth conversation with writers of all genres, on the air since 2004. Thanks for joining us this hour on this station and at writersvoice.net. I'm Francesca Rhiannon. When Eve Ensler first put on her play The Vagina Monologues, she set off a reckoning on the part of women all over the world with the violence and oppression that they had experienced at the hands of a patriarchal system. She went on to meet with women victims of the violence of war in Kosovo, Congo, and elsewhere and hear their stories of horrific abuse, but also to witness their courage and their creation of communities of resilience. Then she came to a reckoning of her own, with the horrific abuse she'd suffered as a child at the hands of her father. We spoke with her about her book about that personal reckoning, The Apology, in 2019. Now Eve Ensler's renamed herself V, her freedom name, as she calls it, and she's come out with a powerful collection of writings that sum up the personal and political reckonings she's been making throughout her long career. It's called Reckoning, and we spoke with her about it in January. V, welcome to Writer's Voice. Thank you. I'm so happy to be with you. So this book, Reckoning, it's a collection of writings over 20 years with an introduction and an epilogue starting in 1993. Back when I first spoke with you in 2005, you were still known as Eve Ensler, but now you're known as V, and in the epilogue, you talk about choosing your freedom name. I just wanted to start out there by asking you, why did you take the name V? Well, it's a good question, and it really goes back to writing the apology, which came out in, I think, 2019, which was... Essentially, I wrote the apology I had been waiting for my whole life from my father for sexually abusing and physically battering me. And, you know, I'd waited a long, long time believing when he was alive that he was finally going to wake up and come to his senses and, you know, tell me he was sorry and own his misdeeds. And and that never happened. And then even after he died, I, I would realize I'd be going to the mailbox having this kind of unconscious fantasy that there'd be a letter waiting for me. And that never came. And then the Me Too movement happened. And, you know, and I I watched all these men getting called out and didn't hear one of them make a public apology. 
And so that combined with my need for this apology compelled me to write this book, my father's apology to me and to say the words and to say all the things I needed to hear in order to get free. And it was a grueling process, but it was also um, very profound. I, I, I allowed myself to really go into my father and listen to my father and understand my father, not justify him by any means, but because the whole thing was about holding him accountable, but try to understand what into what went into making him the kind of man, the kind of person, the kind of father who could have done what he did to me. And by the end of that book, um, which was an incredibly liberatory experience in the end, I the last line of that book is old man be gone. And I don't know who wrote it, my father or I, because by the end, my father was so present. Um, but he really, just like the end of Peter Pan, he just kind of went, you know, the way Tinkerbell disappears into the ethers. And I felt my father was gone. And I realized after that I had no more rancor or bitterness or anger towards my father. I was no longer living in his narrative, his story, you know, which was me constantly proving to him that I wasn't who he said I was and constantly being in argument and rage at him. It, it was over. And I needed my own name. I didn't want the name of a person who didn't have my best, um, my best desires in his, in his, in his, in his, in his heart. Um, someone who had really tried to undermine me and do me in. And so I love the letter V. Um, it's just a wonderful letter and it's, it's, it's kind of played such a huge part in my life in so many different ways, beginning obviously with the vagina monologues, but victory, voluptuousness, um, valid. I mean, I just think of all the words I love with V and I love the shape of V's because they're openings, they're invitations. And I just felt like I'll be V and it will be my life from this point on. And it will be my story that I write from this point on. And it's been a fantastic liberation. Wow. And, and so powerful uh, to hear you say that because you have You've been through so much, and not just yourself, not in your just in your own life, but you have traveled the world, really taking in and witnessing the experiences of so many women. I mean, another word for V, we have to say, is violence and violation, and that's something yeah. that you really do confront in this book. Yes, for sure. And I think, I sometimes wonder, is it harder to go through violence or to witness violence? Is it harder to see those that you love go through a terrible experience or to actually go through it yourself? I think sometimes they're equally painful, but I think I've also had this incredible privilege and honor to travel this world and to sit with women across this planet who have told me their stories, shared their deepest secrets with me, opened their hearts to me, so I could be part of the listening, part of the receiving of those stories. And, you know, at times it's been very, very hard, but I also feel I've also been privy to those women transforming that pain into so much beauty, so much wisdom, gardens and healings and organizations and and struggle that has grown into this massive global movement. Um, so it, it both come together, right? And say more about that global movement. Well, V-Day this year, this this February, we'll be celebrating our 25th year of 
a movement to end violence against women, trans, and non-binary people uh, and the earth. And we've been doing this for 25 years. Um, it began with the vagina monologues, which I gave out free to activists around the world so that they could perform it and raise money and raise consciousness in their local groups in their local communities for, you know, they'd raise money for battered shelters and hotlines and, and they'd bring all kinds of people into that experience to change consciousness. And then that grew into opening safe houses in Kenya to stop female genital mutilation, opening the city of joy in the Congo, which is an incredible um, sanctuary and revolutionary center for women who have been extremely violated um, and that grew into One Billion Rising, which is one, I think, the biggest campaign in the world to end violence against women in its 10th year, still going strong in, I think, 170 countries. And we've been doing this work for a long, long time now, growing this movement of solidarity across borders, because we know patriarchy has no borders, and also feminism has no borders. And it's been amazing to see. I, I can't believe it's 25 years. You know, we were just talking earlier about our first interview being in 2005. That's almost 20 years ago. And, you know, when I was a, a kid, a book came out called The Last of the Just. Did you ever hear of that book? Oh, I do remember that book. Yes. And uh, it's a story of, well, it, it centers on a myth that the world must always have one just, well, of course, they said man, we'll just say one just person now, uh, to witness, to take on, to feel the world's pain. And I really thought of that as I read this book, Reckoning. I mean, you you have to take in a lot of pain and witness it, as we just spoke about, and women to hear women's stories and work with women who have just suffered the most horrendous uh, and horrific abuses, and yet, as you say, so much beauty and strength and resilience has come from that from those women. What is the connection between reckoning and resilience? It's a good question. You know, I think I think one of the reasons I feel and I have felt so willing and and wanting to listen to women's stories is that when I was a child, I was all alone and there was there, there was no one to tell my story to, and there was no one coming to help me, you know? And um, there was no one telling the truth either about what was happening. And I think, I think reckoning is um, I think we're in, in this country in particular, we're in the middle of a massive um, national reckoning, historical reckoning, you know, whether it's having to do with um the, the origins of this country, which is that we stole these lands out from underneath the indigenous who were living there and then created genocide and devastated them and took lands away from people who were the most extraordinary stewards of this land, leading into 400 years of slavery towards African-Americans and Jim Crow and mass incarceration. And not to mention the ongoing misogyny and the ongoing hatred of gay and trans people in this country. But I think part of what happened during COVID is we began to see this reckoning start to happen because there were so many aspects where everything was just completely blowing up and exploding, whether it was George Floyd and those 
diabolical nine minutes, public minutes with a knee on his neck or looking at the infrastructure of this country that was ill-prepared and unwilling to take care of the most needy during COVID and certainly the most amazing caretakers who were being sent in to wear garbage bags and um, you know, reuse masks, or whether it was climate change, where we were seeing fires across this country impacting birds who were literally falling out of the sky because they couldn't breathe. And I think reckoning is so critical to, to accountability, looking back, taking in for myself, the only way through my own trauma, my own abuse, the own rapes, the own battery that I went through was I had to go back through that wound and look at it, acknowledge it, see what it was so I could be released from it. And our country needs to do the exact same thing in spite of the fact that there are all these pushbacks from people who don't want this country to change, who are trying to stop critical race theory or end African American studies or banning books, or we can go on and on of this attempt to stop this reckoning. But I think when you reckon with, and if I look at City of Joy as a model, because women come there for six months, every day their work is to be in group therapy and to go deeper and deeper and deeper into their trauma so that they can release it. When they are released from those traumas, they leave City of Joy as fierce leaders. And they are full of a newborn energy that comes out of having been freed from the, those stories that were were injected into them, literally, that they are 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 exhuming. So I think I think reckoning and resilience go hand in hand. And I think this country is in a very bad place right now. The level of loneliness, the level of drug addiction, the level of violence, the shootings, the police killings, the the fentanyl addiction, it's all reflective of stuck, deadening, unprocessed trauma and karma. This is Writer's Voice. I'm talking with V, formerly Eve Ensler, about her new collection of writings, Reckoning. You talk about the energy that's released. It's almost, I mean, I just wonder, how can one overcome such incredible trauma. I mean, does it really work? How does that happen that you can heal in some way? And it's a collective healing. It, 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 that's part of the process. It's. I think there's only collective healing. You know, one of the things I've, I've always been so moved by at City of Joy is there's no individual therapy because the fundamental belief there is that we only heal as a community and healing outside the community is impossible which I so love as an idea. Um, I think you can do the work on yourself and you can try to go deeply into your thing with a therapist. But I, I know that unless you hook that up to the larger context of, you know, how, how did you get abused? What is patriarchy? How is it that my father had the liberty and the freedoms and the rights to dominate me and be a tyrant over my life? Who gave him all those controls? I mean, we live in a patriarchal world. That's what happened. It was a political reality, right? And how is it that capitalism, which is a system that we are being run to the ground in, keeps creating more and more trauma in its 
exclusion of people and the disposability of people and the consuming in, in this mad need to consume and compete and be better. That's all part of our trauma. So there's no way we can heal from those traumas unless we deal with it politically or collectively, you know? Yeah, absolutely. You actually, you say we need a global initiative on the scale of a Marshall Plan or larger to deconstruct and exercise patriarchy. And so that really brings up the question from that statement and also from what you've just said. Do you feel that patriarchy is actually the foundation of all other forms of oppression? Or or is that kind of a meaningless question because they, it's intersectional? It's intersectional, but I, I think the patriarchy really is at the core of just about everything. I mean, it's a system of such extreme inequality and extreme domination and extreme expression where very, very, very few people at the top have everything and determine who gets to be valued and included and worthy. And if we look at white supremacy or racism or capitalism or imperialism or colonialism, it seems to me all those things grow out of that. And I wish I could say that there was one country in the world that I had traveled to where I hadn't seen that, but um, patriarchy is, you know, I, I I was looking at the BBC documentary yesterday on, on Modi in India, where he is literally, you know, and has been since Gujarat stirring up this genocide, this potential genocide in India towards Muslims, right? This Hindu nationalism. And then I watched a documentary on people who were escaping on North Korea, right? And the tyranny of of that regime. And then you look at Putin, and then you look at America, and then you look everywhere in the world at these governments that have felt their mandate to take and intervene and go into countries and, and do what they want. And, you know, whether it's the domination of the earth and the stealing of lands and the desecration and taking off mountaintops and desecration of forests, or whether it's it's the political interventions, it's the same story, right? And we're at the apex of it. I mean, the only further place we could go is the total destruction of humanity. You know, I think we're very close to it. I do. It is a terrifying thing. We just moved to the closest we've ever been on the doomsday clock to doomsday. No, we are so close to nuclear war. And this this escalation in Ukraine is utterly terrifying. And the fact that we're not thinking of other solutions to this and diplomatic. I mean, it, people are going to push this to really, even that it's in the mindset or of consideration is such a patriarchal notion that you destroy everything to be number one, right? You destroy everything to win. Yes, including yourself. Exactly. You destroy yourself. I mean, it's so, it's so lame. I'm sorry. (laughs) Really? It's so lame and terrifying. Yeah, you know, but it's not, it's not just about men and women. Patriarchy is, is you right. It's a system. It's a system. It's a paradigm. It's an agreement to live within certain rules and laws. And, and you often see women who get into the political system taking on the exact same roles and demeanor and ways because the system is there. I mean, I've known some terrible women patriarchs, you know, it's, it's more, are you building a world where you believe every single person is significant and magnificent and valuable 
where we live in cooperation, where we understand we are one with the earth and interdependent as we are with each other? Are you building a world where you want more people to be eating and breathing and living well and being educated and having healthcare than you do billions and billions of dollars being spent on weapons that can destroy us. Now I was reading this thing today on poverty, how many billions, I think it's $400 billion a year gets spent worldwide on military and, and weapons. And if all of that stopped, if we stopped all of that, we would cure every problem we had on the planet. We would annihilate poverty. So think about who we are as human beings. But that is a, that is a patriarchal system that led us there. Yeah, and you write about this in one of the essays, Dear White Women, which addresses uh, the women you saw standing behind Brett Kavanaugh at one of his, uh, in support of him during the Supreme Court hearings. But it also is on a very personal level because your mother cooperated with the patriarchy, cooperated with your father's horrific abuse of you. And yet you were able to come to a reckoning and a reconciliation. Interesting how those two words both start with the same syllable. Yes, yes. And and the truth of the matter is I, for a long time, could just never understand how my mother was not only allowing the violence and horrible degradation of me, but how she was allowing it of herself. She was essentially my father's fourth child. He ruled her. He determined her. She once cut her hair. And I remember my father didn't speak to her for months as if her hair was his. And I think, I think often like women get into these marriages where they have known no other way. They, they come from families where their father dominated their mothers and they get into marriages where their husband dominates them, where they're, they're even scared inside the voting polls where they're alone, that their husband might know that they're voting for somebody different. I, I, it's like my mother saying to me, I'll never forget this. After she found out, I confronted her about what my father had done. And she had she called me in the middle of the night once and said, what if I die and I meet your father and he's upset with me that I believed you? And I thought to myself, even after death, my mother is afraid of my father, right? That he will haunt her, that he will be there. That's how powerful patriarchy is. So I think for for women to stand up and contradict their husbands and say, no, I know in my heart and my guts that what Christine Blasey Ford is saying is the truth. It's obviously true. Everybody knew it was true. How could we possibly appoint a Supreme Court justice who is an open rapist? But then again, we already have a sexual abuser on the court. Now we have two known ones and two appointed by one. So again, how do we help women to break ranks, get courage, and stand up to the patriarch so we can move the world in another direction? What did you say to your mother when she asked you that question? I said, send him to me. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, so I wondered if you you said something to her that was going to be a clue to how do we do this? How, How do we end patriarchy? By forming movements and solidarity and safety with other sisters and and trans and non-binary and men who are in this struggle together. You know, for me, it's all about solidarity and movement building because the thing is, it's too scary to do this on our own. When I put on the vagina monologues, right, the first time, I had a producer, 
I had a director. I had people in the theater who was with me. I had women who began to come and support me. I couldn't have done that by myself. This movement that we've had for 25 years is made up of thousands, if not millions of people all across this planet who are standing up. So when the women in Iran rise up and literally put their lives on the line for freedom, to wear what they want, to walk where they want, to be educated, to laugh, to dance, to have lives. We have a movement that says, we have your back. We're standing up for you as much as we can, but we're here and we see you and we're with you. And that is so critical for any person who is fighting for freedom to know that everybody, that people have your back, right? That's the only way I know how to do it. And I think by the time I confronted my mother, she knew that I, and I was talking to her, she knew that I would go along with her and be by her side if she were to recognize and, and admit what had happened. And I think that was a really good thing for my mother because I don't think she had that solidarity her whole life. Yeah, and she really came to a very heartfelt place of apology to you. She did. It was very moving. And I'll tell you a, a beautiful story. You know, when we had our very first V-Day, in 1998, it was a huge performance with all these amazing performers who had agreed and were scared to death, like Glenn Close and Marissa Tomei and Rosie Perez and Whoopi Goldberg. And my mother came. It was 2,500 people. And at the end, I often asked at the very end of the show if people would stand up if they'd ever been abused. And then the second question was, will you stand up if you've ever known someone has been abused? And my mother stood up. And it was one of the most profound moments of my life that we were now sisters in this struggle. And it turned out, of course, that my mother had been abused. And it turned out my mother had been through a lot herself that she was then able to begin to process with me, which was amazing. You know, you know that that, that bell draw lifted for her, too. And her story got to be told. Oh, that is beautiful. And so is this book, Reckoning. It's a collection of uh, writings, of poems. It was in parts painful to read and inspiring to read, ultimately powerfully inspiring to read and so inspiring to talk with you as well. V, thank you so much. Thank you so much for all the amazing work you've done all these years. I'm so happy to be in conversation and in solidarity with you. Oh, thank you so much. That means a lot to me. Eve Ensler. You can listen to our 2019 interview with her about the apology at writersvoice.net. Next up, a bound woman is a dangerous thing. Stay tuned after the break. In 2019, we spoke with poet and author Damaris Hill about her narrative and verse, a Bound Woman is a Dangerous Thing, The Incarceration of African-American Women from Harriet Tubman to Sandra Bland. In honor of Black History Month, let's listen back to that conversation. From Harriet Tubman to Sandra Bland and Black Lives Matter, black women freedom fighters have braved violence, scorn, despair, and isolation to fight for their rights. In A Bound Woman is a Dangerous Thing, Damaris Hill honors their experiences with responses to her heroes that are both harrowing and hopeful. In her love poems, as she calls them, to such women as Harriet Tubman, Zora Neale Thurston, Ida B. Wells, 
Eartha Kitt, and others, she pays homage to women who broke the bounds that racism and sexism tried to silence them with. She also honors women of lesser renown who fought back against chains, literal and otherwise, sometimes by violence, sometimes by breaking the law, but always with unbounded courage. Using poems, other writings, and photographs, Hill explores the different meanings of being bound, from slavery and incarceration to being bound to those we love, or bound for freedom. Damaris Hill's books include The Fluid Boundaries of Suffrage and Jim Crow, and a poetry collection, Visible Textures. A Bound Woman is a Dangerous Thing is out from Bloomsbury Publishing. In addition to being a writer, Damaris Hill teaches creative writing and English literature, African American studies, and women's studies at the University of Kentucky. Damaris Hill, welcome to Writer's Voice. Thank you for inviting me. I'm so happy to uh, talk to you. Well, this was a, just a terrific book, not just of poems, but also of these kind of prose poem mini biographies. Very moving. A Bound Woman is a Dangerous Thing, The Incarceration of African-American Women from Harry Tubman to Sandra Bland. You say the poems in the book are love letters. Love letters? Yes. I come from a religious tradition as far as uh, my upbringing. Most of the people in my family, they, they are ministers. I was very much raised in a Methodist church. And being a creative child... Of course, some of my first exposure to art, including music, visual art, and literature, was all biblically based in a very Methodist, which is a type of intellectual Christian tradition. And I think the idea of the hymn sticks with me even when I try to avoid it in my poetry. And so that's what I mean by like love songs and praise songs probably my earliest exposure was like a hymn and maybe my knowledge of those types of love letters and praise songs evolved from there. They also are poems of struggle though. You you know, you write that they will not comfort. Yeah, I meant that. <laughs> <laughs> and 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 I, I, I can attest to that. They they are they're strong. They're strong poems. So uh Talk about this twinning of love and struggle. Well, it was important to me that I kept those parallels in the poems. And I don't know if it's um, the twinning of love and struggle, but I definitely wanted to explore or try to explore in each poem the multiple entendres of bound. And if I was going to use the historical context with a negative connotation of oppressed or meaning fettered, or held back, I also wanted to provide an opportunity in the poem for the subject in the poem to actually spring away from that or to find connections in love and provide a positive outlet in addition to the historical negative connotation. You say that writing the poems have forced you to question what it means for a Black woman to engage in resistance. Could you explain that? Well, we know that there's been significant cultural shifts over the past recent years about what what are the mass messages about America and ideas of democracy 
and liberty and the polarizations of, let's say, rights and amendment. And so being a former service member and investing in these ideas of Americanness and nationhood in multiple ways in my professional life as, as a writer, as a researcher, um, again, as an armed service member, as a civil servant that was once a public teacher, and seeing how these how these ideas have been exploited and distorted in recent years. You know, violence is being passed off as democracy. And violence has always been an integral part of the American fabric. But now it's being given away wholesale in exchange for civil rights. Are you talking, say, for example, about the white nationalists at Charlottesville? I'm talking about Charlottesville. I'm talking about an individual prejudice that results in killings. I'm talking about collective prejudice and this belief in the mythology of white supremacy. Do you think that it's something that has been strengthened or more just revealed by Trump? Oh, I think it's been more revealed and is being marketed because I think people that invest in white supremacy may be invested in white supremacy because the alternative would be to consider how white supremacy is not working in their favor. Yeah. Right? That's the alternative. Really dealing with the complicated notions of white privilege and how much privilege is not being accessed in whiteness in the same way that it has been before. Divide and conquer is the way I talk about it. Oh, yeah. You know, sometimes I theorize and I speculate and I wonder what happened to all of this talk about the 1%. That seems to be gone. And now we have a more polarizing perspective of America. Well, I think we could go down and talk about this quite a bit. (laughs) We can go down that rabbit hole and be there for a very long time, couldn't we? Exactly. (laughs) But I'd actually like to get back to your wonderful book. Oh, thanks. (laughs) About woman is a dangerous thing. So and and really this it's certainly relevant to what we're talking about. In fact, your second section, I'm going to jump to that is titled bound fettered. Tell us what are the multiple meanings of these two words for you in this book? Well, you know, the the book is in seven sections, I believe, six or seven sections. And bound, of course, I chose the word bound because it's a multiple entendre. So I opened the book. The first chapter in the book is talking about how I'm bound to my ancestors, blood relatives, and otherwise. And then the end of the book is talking about how I'm bound to the next generation in terms of motherhood and what I owe the loyalty to the next generation. But in between, I talk about bound in the negative connotation of being fettered. I talk about bound in terms of demarcation. What does it mean to to bind a book, to write something down, to make this statement in this very specific way that we value when we historicize things and create national narratives? What does it mean to be bound in that way? Um, I also talk about bound in terms of philosophy and and being hemmed in, 
what does it mean to be bound intellectually or to buy in intellectually um, to other belief systems? And you also say at one point that using formal poetic structure is a way of being bound. And when I thought about that, I thought, you know, there are ways to be bounded or limited that inspire creativity. Um, and, and it seems to me that that's one of them to, to use the strictures of, of a poetic form. Yes. So I think it's Toni Morrison, but I may be wrong. That says that writing is not only a matter of life, it's a matter of language. And so when we really start to unpack values and what we consider like, you know, high art and low art or folk culture versus national and international like artistic mediums, language in terms of literature is a very integral part of that. Right. And so. What I'm playing with in the second section in terms of those women that many of them were escaping chattel slavery or just coming out of a state of chattel slavery, they moved to Philadelphia, right? Because they believe that Philadelphia is the city of brotherly love and the seed of democracy in this country, right? This is the place where Americanness happens, And so these black women migrate here. And when they migrate to Philadelphia in between the 1890s and 1910, as Callie-Ann Gross talks about in Colored Amazons, they find themselves battling different forms of constraints and bondage. So rather than chattel slavery, there are economic constraints. There's open discrimination. There are limitations in the types of work that they can do because of education and or discrimination. So there are all of these additional social circumstances that limit their access to this American idea that motivated them to come to Philadelphia. And some of them really really fight back. and Some of them do fight back, and I just get so tickled at the ways that they fight back. Like uh, Black Bess and Mermaid Stroll, I love that she's trying to convince men that she's a prostitute, and as soon as she gets in a dark corner, she's robbing them and keeping all of her goodies. It's brilliant. I love it. And, you you know, you also point out the different ways that Black women and white women were, you know, who did fight back or who were, you know, went outside, um, you know, outside convention, how they were treated, that black women were judged to be criminal and white women were judged to be insane. Absolutely. And I think I think we're still on on some levels dealing with that distortion and that demonization of black women acting against the norms. You know, there's there's an assumption of confusion and victimhood if white women act outside of the norms or if they evade expectations. But if black women evade expectations or sometimes even meet expectations in a way that doesn't please people, they're often demonized and criminalized. This is Writer's Voice, and we're talking with Damaris Hill about her narrative in verse, A Bound Woman is a Dangerous Thing. Yeah, you say at a certain point it's costly 
to stay free and appear sane. Mm -hmm. Yeah. (laughs) Say more about that. Well, if you are committed to these ideas of freedom, right? And I think a person that is free has to be committed to questioning what is freedom almost in every instance and in every choice. And we, we've already discussed how ingrained certain ideas like white supremacy and patriarchy that are invested in the mythologies of race and gender and norms, right? For what it means to be American. And if you're, if you're not invested in those hierarchies, and you don't even reflect physically, emotionally, or mentally those hierarchies, then every negotiation, whether interpersonal or institutional, has to go back to that question, is this aiding in my ideas of freedom or not? And what are the benefits and consequences of that? And so that's that's what I mean that it it is it is costly to to be free and appear sane because my ideas of freedom don't always match up with those institutional expectations or the expectations of the person that I'm having an interpersonal relationship with. That must have been incredibly difficult uh, when you you know part of the armed forces. I mean, I can't imagine. <laughs> I mean, I can't imagine a, a a more hierarchical structure, one in which to be a soldier means to suppress your own individual reality. So talk about the, the contradiction, the tension, uh, and how do you resolve it? Um, well, let me at first say that this book is an exploration, and there are many things that are unresolved, right? I'm just still evolving. And that's definitely... That's definitely one of them. You know, I kind of go into that in, in The Patriot and the Prisoner, which we definitely don't have time to read because it's a longer piece. But um, it explores my personal and intellectual investments in nationalism and scales them against the most formative relationship of my life, which means my relationship to my, to my son. Say more about that. Oh, I, I don't know what else there is to say. Well, you talk about your son who grew up with a beautiful spirit. And correct me in my, if I'm wrong, but I, I feel in some way got ground down by the system and who yeah. has tried to, to cope with that by, um, you know, by be, abusing substances. Absolutely. That is that is a correct assumption. My son grew up in the era of hope, prior to the era of hope. As early as 2000, he was invested in like the news and politics. He was already expressing interest in that. You know, like most mothers, I invest in whatever my child wants to develop as far as his talents. And for my son, those talents included politics. My, my son was post-racial prior to the recent cultural conversion of 2015 and specifically 2016. 
very aware and knowledgeable of national politics on an intimate level. And so I think what began for him, the struggle began for him probably as early as Trayvon Martin, but definitely when the Michael Brown verdict uh, happened because we talked about it on the phone. And then from there, his disappointment in the devaluing, at the blatant devaluing of blackness in this country, I think it began to fray him, you know? And we talked about it often when before we never had to discuss it. So I want to also say that being a parent of any child is hard. But being a parent of a black child in America, when you know white supremacy is looming, when you know discrimination is looming, and to promote that child's visions and dreams is a real strategic feat. And I thought we had accomplished that. And then once we we are in college, and, you know, my son is making strategic choices about his major and his friends based on his ambitions for politics. And then we we have this incessant intoxication, a wall, and incessant toxic, yeah, assault um, that begins to invade all layers and fabrics of public and private life. And so being a college student, heavily invested in politics, it can be um, a space with very little diversity. For the first time ever, he had to wrestle with the ideas that his white friends did not acknowledge his blackness. They did not acknowledge it. A terrible disappointment coming on the heels of a black president. On the heels of a black president, at the toes of a white supremacist president, in the midst of your college career, which is supposed to be some of the happiest and most social points of your life, you know, on the eve of your professional career as a politician and realizing that your peers don't acknowledge your blackness is it's probably a lot to struggle with. Yeah, and this is echoed in the book very much. In this book, A Bound Woman is a Dangerous Thing, Damaris Hill. You know, the third section, bound slash demarcation, boundaries, you write about the women who wrote about this kind of oppression. For example, you, you open the section with Ida B. Wells. Tell us a, about her and, you know, she documented lynchings. So Ida B. Wells was important, number one, because her life is a testament to the challenges of white supremacy, but also the ways that she demanded that people acknowledge the ways that white supremacist violence was affecting her and her community. Um, so Ida B. Wells was important because we most of us know her as a journalist and an educator, but I want people to understand that in the 1870s and 90s, right? Well, at, in the 1890s, she was on the forefront 
of demography and statistical documentation. And we don't talk about her in that very specific, high intellectual context. The journalism was for everyone else. It was to translate the the statistics that she had been keeping. And she had networks. This is a black woman, a young black woman who has networks all across the country where people are phoning into her and telling her about each lynching that's happening in their region. And she's keeping statistics. And then she's using the statistics in her newspapers to educate black people and non-black people and others about the violences that are happening in America. And yeah, I think what's happening in A Bound Woman is a Dangerous Thing in that section in terms of demarcation and boundaries is there are a few women that are noted in that chapter that are absolute geniuses that history and most narratives refuse to acknowledge their genius. And Ida B. Wells is definitely one of them. And Zora Neale Hurston is another, I mean, she was acknowledged later, you know, we read about her. But in her own time, she she died in poverty as, as a maid. So tell us, tell us about Zora Neale Hurston. Well, I wrote specifically about Zora Neale Hurston in a context of her inspirations of becoming a, a writer and an anthropologist and just being a young woman. I mean, it's important to remember, you know, Zora as this sassy, unbothered, unrestrained, unbound intellectual, right? But when we think about her as a young woman in this emergent field of anthropology, where being a woman and being anything less than white, that the entire discipline believed that you were biologically inferior and less intelligent than any white guy in the room. For her to be in this field was remarkable. And I cannot imagine the amount of bias, scrutiny, negativity that she must experience in this one space. To have to study these mythologies of inferiority in order to receive your certification as a scientist must have been grueling at certain points. And then for me, imagining her experience without the burden of femininity and sexuality and the exotic desires of the the men in this space is impossible. So I'm just talking about the intellectual burdens, but imagine the, the hashtag Me Too burdens that she was experiencing in this space. Exactly. I mean, and that's certainly been true of other great African-American writers. Is it Toni Morrison and Beloved, for example? Yeah, I mean, that, but also, yeah, like on, in the literary scape, but also these scientists that are obsessed with these hierarchies and the disposabilities of people that may or certainly do, some of them at least, have uh 
these ideas of sexual exoticism and savagery associated with black women, right? And so I can't imagine how resilient Zora had to be to survive that space. I also want to like note that we don't talk about, and I think I found this in one of the archival pieces that were online about Zora Neale Hurston, that she was the archivist at an air army base that became Cape Canaveral in Florida. Can you imagine? And I think that that, that document said that she was fired for knowing too much. Uh, <laughs> yeah, right? What you were just talking about, the exoticism, you know, I think of, of Josephine Baker, for example, who you don't write about here, but who also was a figure who who played within the stereotype of of that kind of exoticism and yet totally transcended it. Very subversively, which was indicative of her time and space, of negotiating that space and negotiating her power in that space to make gains for people, right? But it's also important to know that that wasn't only Josephine Baker's tactic, but that's also Esther's tactic from the Bible, right? So this idea of subversively negotiating power for the collective good is not something that exclusively happened in an African-American context, but has a much larger tradition in terms of negotiating power for people who historically don't have any. You also talk about Eartha Kitt, another one of these women who transcended stereotypes. So I find this so funny, right? Because like we're talking about the erasure of blackness. And like I think Eartha Kitt was one of those people in the 1950s and 60s that was embraced in a certain type of politic that was about unification and about the erasure of difference. And I'm not taking anything away from her talent. She was immensely talented as well. But she was one of those people who who were included in that, right? And so she's invited to the White House for this uh, type of summit and talk with uh, Lady Bird Johnson. And apparently when she gets there, everybody's talking about table linen and the type of flowers that they want to align the highway. And she was like, well, I want to talk about Vietnam. I want to talk about how many black and brown boys are dying. And then by the time she left the White House, it was already in the paper that she had made Lady Bird Johnson cry. That's so powerful. Yeah. And so it became this Eartha Kid is a bully situation. And then from then on, she was being investigated by some of the highest offices in the United States and essentially blackballed. She did not work in the United States for at least a decade. She went back to her hotel. She had tour dates and people spoke about her tour dates not existing, her hotel reservations being canceled. And her earnings were effectively stopped because she asked that question. Yeah, and I think it was a very painful thing for Eartha Kitt. So, of course, the popular memory of Eartha Kitt is all of her successes and and the love that we had for her um, as fans. But people don't discuss how at the moment when she expressed concern for others, she was demonized. And the CIA called her a sadistic nymphomaniac, which is... Absolutely. That's exactly what they called her, a sadistic nymphomaniac. I mean, just deconstruct that for a minute. Those two words put together are very peculiar. 
and they they hearken to ideas that I spoke about earlier about black femininity, right? Exactly. Not only criminal, but also very sexually available, right? Exactly. And another person you talk about who talked about intersectionality, uh, which I, I hadn't known about, was Fannie Lou Hamer. Absolutely. Tell us about her. Well, Fannie Lou Hamer, of course, was an amazing person and um, can continue to, to, to fight for the liberties of all and civil rights and to protest even in the face of death, rape physical acts of violence that include beating and continuing to advocate for democracy. You know, um, it's so funny that on some of the national narratives, there are ideas about the enemy within, and it seems like Black women are disproportionately identified as the enemy within but all of the black women that I know, Fannie Lou Hamer, Angela Davis, Asada Shakur, Shirley Chisholm, these women that really call people to task on democracy are rarely acknowledged as being some of the most fundamental believers in democracy. You have to have a religious fervor for democracy in order to call people to task about what democracy should be and should not be. And that is not acknowledged. Yet people that are little invested in the ideas of democracy and use the term as a type of social currency, which has no substance or backing, are thought of being the upholders of democracy. It's just an irony or a truth of the United States that we rarely acknowledge. And I hope that this book begins to acknowledge that. And it certainly does. I mean, we've this has been a fascinating conversation, but there's so much more in this book. A Bound Woman is a Dangerous Thing, The Incarceration of African-American Women from Harriet Tubman to Sandra Bland. Thank you so much, Damaris Hill, for talking with us here. Thank you so much, Francesca. That was Damaris Hill talking with Writer's Voice in 2019. That's it this week for Writer's Voice. Listen again for free, read book excerpts, and sign up for the podcast at writersvoice.net. I'm Francesca Rhiannon. <laughs>